G.K. Chesterton wrote an essay called The Ballad of a Strange Town from his book Tremendous Trifles. And the tale focuses on two men whose sense of adventure awakens once they realize they are not where they thought they were. They were in the wrong town. So here's, here's what I hear their musings. Here we go. They say, this is what makes life at once so splendid and so strange. We are in the wrong world. When I thought that was the right town, it bored me. When I knew it was wrong, I was happy. And then comes the application for today, again, listening to the narrator in the, in the story. So the false optimism, the modern happiness, tires us because it tells us that we ought to fit into this world. The true happiness is that we don't fit. And we come from somewhere else. <laughs> so this morning we're going to consider the adventure God has for us, where we are from somewhere else. Uh, we are in the wrong town. We are in Babylon. Okay? So let me, let me read. I, just yesterday I was reading uh, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And so uh, she, she writes this. And I think this is uh, just exactly what we're talking about here, we're thinking about in terms of uh, the wrong town. Our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where conservative Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitivity training has become an Orwellian nightmare, where sexual orientation is now considered a true category of personhood, who you really are, where biological sex is no longer considered a factual reality, offering God's designed blessing for all of humanity, but only a psychological reality. It's meaning subject to how you feel. Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. The old rules don't apply anymore. Many Christians genuinely do not know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight. The invitation to bring people who despise you into your home may sound like a horrific prospect. And of course, that's what her whole book is, is about opening up our homes in hospitality to this, these people, this world in which we live in, which is completely different than what we maybe thought it would be in terms of exactly going back to what G.K. his characters said here, and that is that we're from somewhere, somewhere else where we fit into another town. Um, so what I want to do th this morning, first of all, is I want to talk a little bit about Babylon, and I want to help you to see that what we're going to see here in, uh, in, in uh, Daniel ch chapters 1, 2, and 3, uh, while they're in, in Babylonian exile, I want to show you how Babylon uh, is very much what we can think of ourselves today in the world that we, that we live in. So we're going to start there, and then uh, we'll get into chapter uh, 1 in the text here. But before we even get there, I want to go over to the overall uh, kind of title that we have here. So we've titled the, the three hours this, Resolve, Living, and Leading in Babylon. So Resolve, Living, and Leading in Babylon. And what we're going to look at in these first three chapters, we're going to look at Daniel and his friends and how they lived and led in Babylon. And in those chapters, they face some uniquely perilous moments in which will require, chapter 1, it's going to require a conscience 
Chapter 2, it's going to require a clarity, and chapter 3, it's going to require courage, okay? So we're going from conscience to clarity and, and then courage, and you're going to see that the peril that they are going through is, is going to get worse and worse and worse in these first three, three, three chapters. And so we need to be people who are resolved, men who are resolved, that we have a resolution that as we are going, as we're living in this this world uh, that is not the world we're used to, uh, that we've already made some resolutions or we've resolved to do some things, and I think that'll help us in terms of what we're going to be facing or what we are facing. As a matter of fact, what you're probably going to face this afternoon. Uh, so this is, this is as applicable as what could have happened uh, even this afternoon in terms of the faces, facing temptation that might come your way. So we are in Babylon. Let me show you what, what I mean by this. First of all, uh, Babylon has threefold significance, okay? For threefold significance in Scripture. Historic, all right, historic significance, and then it also has prophetic uh, significance, and then it has symbolic significance, all right? So biblically as we see it, historic Prophetic and then uh, symbolic. So historically, it refers to the great empire of Babylonia, of which was generally present since about 2000 BC. So it had been around a, a long time, but rose to its greatest power when Nebuchadnezzar's father, so we're going to find Nebuchadnezzar as the main character uh, within our first three chapters here, or even more than that. But it's his father who led the Babylonians and the Medes to overthrow the Assyrians who had occupied Babylon for a hundred years. And historically, this was kind of a renaissance, a new Babylonia, a new Babylon with political, economic, and cultural influence. And then this new Babylon that God used, particularly Nebuchadnezzar, God used it to discipline his people and destroy, uh, by destroying Jerusalem and, um, and its temple, Jerusalem and its temple. So this is a world power that has come to rise, and it's a power that's going to have some incredible influence within, uh, within the known world at that time. Seven years after his father had overthrown Assyria, Nebuchadnezzar came into power, and in 605 B.C., he immediately used his clout, and he used it to plunder the nations that they had overrun or the nations that were skirting on the edges. And it was, it was uh, Judah was, was on the edges of their of their power that they, uh, he began to plunder them out. So he, using that influence, Daniel and his friends, so now we're getting to our characters, Daniel and his friends were uh, exported or <laughs> deported uh, into, uh, into Babylon. Okay? So they were deported into exile in 605 B.C. And then a second de de uh, deportation take, uh, took place in 590 B.C. And then the most devastating one was 586 B.C. when Babylon completely destroyed uh, Jerusalem and, and the temple. So there's our historical kind of movement here. So we're at 605 B.C., and uh, it, already God, God is allowing Nebuchadnezzar to kind of plunder, plunder the people. Now, I want you to listen to this. I'm going to ask you a question, and you actually have to answer it to me. So you're going to be speaking back to me. Here we go. So the theme of Israel's God is that he is enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 123, verse 1. That is, he's not a regional God. He is the God of God, God of gods, or as Justin would say, he, uh, in the control room of the universe, all right? Yet his city and his temple, where he meets his people, they're going to get destroyed. Now, how can you imagine this might be interpreted for the average 
um, average Hebrew. How, how can you imagine this might be interpreted for the Hebrew who's not familiar with God's word? What, what's going through their minds? Because already Babylon is coming upon the edge, is, is beginning to plunder, and so Daniel is experiencing this in his friends. So how are they thinking the average Jew, maybe the one that doesn't know God's word, how are they thinking? Give me some, give me some thoughts. What? Okay, so you're, you're thinking, so you're hoping that the average, the average Hebrew will say, hey, this is okay, this is all right, I know who I am, I know who God is. Okay, you've already taken us where we're going to be headed, excellent, okay, excellent, good, 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 good. How about someone who's not thinking so clearly? God is losing. What else? Okay, he doesn't care. He's not powerful, he doesn't care, what else? His word may be not be true. Question, beginning to question the veracity of God's word. Anything else? God has forsaken them. Yeah. So as this is going on, this is perhaps the thought process that might be going on with the average Jew, maybe the one that doesn't know God's word, maybe doesn't understand what God is doing, that he is a regional Weak God, and, he's, and, and certainly Babylon might be interpreting this. I'm certain Babylon was interpreting her success that this is exactly what is true. God is not powerful. God doesn't care about these people. God's word isn't true. That's what they are, that's what they, that's how they're interpreting it, okay? Um, and it makes sense from their perspective, right? They don't have God's word. They haven't had this covenant relationship with him. And that's how we can be tempted even today as we are, we're feeling this this, this world that we are living in is tempting to be thinking in these kind of terms where we wonder, has God abandoned us? Is God's word true? Does he really care for us? Can we trust in him? However, okay, over a thousand years earlier, God has already given his covenant to his people and anticipated exactly what they are experiencing. So each deportation with their increasing intensity and devastation that they are experiencing from 605 to 597 to 586, as it's getting worse and worse and worse, that has already been anticipated in terms of the covenant God has made for them. So I need you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. So we are going to go uh, get into God's word a little bit here. So pull out your, uh, pull out your Bibles or pull out your Bible app and go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this helps to bring context to what is going on within these uh, individuals' lives, what's going on in, in Israel. So Deuteronomy chapter 28, we're going to begin at verse 58. And it starts this way. If you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God, then Yahweh will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness, sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh will bring upon you until you are destroyed. That's craziness, right? 
Wow. Okay, move on. Whereas you are as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh your God. And as Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you should be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of. See, remember, this is being given before they've entered into, uh, into the promised land. But he said, that I can pluck you as quickly as I can put you in there. Um, and the Lord will scatter you. Look there, verse 64. The Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall not find respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Man, that doesn't sound like a very caring God, right? right, Well, we're going to see some care. We're going to see what he does with that. Your life shall shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at the evening you shall say, if it only were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see, and the Lord Yahweh will bring you back in ships to Egypt in a journey that I promised you that you should never make again, and there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's devastating. This is crazy. And yet God has an intent, and what he is trying to do is he's trying to take this and have a purpose for them because what they're doing is they're chasing after that which will not ultimately satisfy. They're they're chasing after that which will not bring them life. And so he takes these things from him. He puts them into exile in order that something might happen, and that is that they might awaken uh, to their condition. He reverses the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant and has this purpose. It's a disciplined purpose. There, there is hope in the law that God's people will be convicted of their sin in their time of exile and repent and return to the living God. So you still have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy. You're going to go to chapter 30 and listen to these words. Chapter 30, verse 1. So you've gone two pages over or whatever here, and here we go. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them in mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So the one who's been driving them is, by, by the way, I'm calling him Yahweh, right? Yahweh, because that's the, that's the covenant name that's been given. So when you see those capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. That's the covenant name, the God, the God who was, who is, and will be. I mean, we can't, we can't even comprehend a God that has no, no beginning and uh, no end. Uh, that's the greatness of our God. But Yahweh, your God, has driven you. And return to Yahweh, your God, and you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Yahweh, your God, will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh, your God, has scattered you. So we're getting this sense that, oh, wait a minute, God is in control after all, just as just as my brother here, Shane, said, uh, God is in control. After all, he is using this. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar who was in control. It was God who was in control and using Nebuchadnezzar to work out, if you will, the covenants, the curses of the covenant in order to bring conviction to God's people that they would come back to him. And we could keep on reading all the way down to verse 10 uh, where there's a restoration, but we won't do that. So yet, while this was in the law, many of God's people, many of God's people were not theologically interpreting it that way. Um, uh, especially those who were in exile or potentially could be in exile because it, it felt like God had abandoned them. It felt like that God was impotent. It felt like God didn't care the very words that you were, that you were saying there. So now, so, so Babylon is, is significant historically, 
But also Babylon is significantly, uh, significant prophetically. So let me just quickly talk about Babylon's prophetic uh, significance. Even in the advance and, uh, and in the middle of her greatest world influence, the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, prophesied Babylon's downfall. So there was already an anticipation. And yet, interestingly enough, the kind of downfall that they ultimately were expressing was going to happen to Babylon didn't actually occur. That worse things were going to happen to Babylon than, that, than what happened historically to Babylon when she fell uh, by the hand of Persia. So there's this thought process here that prophetically somehow Babylon is still in one sense going to have a significant impact in our world in the, the future. So that, that's interesting. And I think it's this way. Third thing, Babylon's symbolic significance. Babylon's symbolic significance. So we've got, we've got historical significance, we've got prophetic significance, now we've symbolic significance. Babylon has always been understood symbolically as a place and people who are in rebellion against God, stubbornly self-sufficient in rejecting him and depending upon self, lustful, for power and glory, and identifying ultimate meaning and hope in the autonomous self, in the autonomous self, where I now become the one who decides what is right and wrong. Oh, wow, that really sounds familiar, doesn't it? So, rebellion against God, rejecting a dependence upon God, Lust for power and glory, identifying ultimate meaning and hope in the autonomous self. Now, who can tell me where, where Babylon started? Or maybe we even have in Genesis, we even have a whisper of Babylon. Who's going to do it for me? Yes, sir, Christian. What? Well, after Cain, but yes, Cain would be certainly, he is certainly one that is working into the spirit of Babylon. I, it was actually a, a polling to get, oh, I, see, I see Sam out there. Yes, the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. Excellent job. So the Tower of Babel, what do we know what happens there? What are they going to do? They're going to make a name for themselves. They're going to reject the mandate that God had given them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're going to just, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay together. You know, we're going to be together, and we are going to, the, the autonomous self, we are the ones who decide what will be. And it was out of pride, we're going to show our glory in the face of God. And so the Tower of Babel sounds a lot like Babylon, doesn't it? Right? So that's where that comes from. Yeah, the Tower of Babylon. So thank you. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's the characteristic of the Tower of Babylon. So it's not surprising that the Apostle John then takes Babylon as the symbol for humanity's final rebellion. So where do we go? We go to Revelation, and what do we find? We find Babylon back on, on the world scene, if you will, in terms of who she is symbolically. And so what do we see there in Revelation? We see a rejection of God's authority, an exaltation of lusts and desires. You guys feel like we're living in that world right now, right? Uh, a sexual sin will be rampant. Rebellion and hatred of God and the things of God will, will abound. A unity around the exaltation of humanity as the greatest good. Okay? So you can begin to see why, why, why Daniel is, is 
This is where Daniel's living, and this is where we're living. Um, so when I say we're in Babylon, I mean we're living in that kind of age uh, that is increasingly characteristic of what Babylon symbolizes. So in what ways, as you're kind of looking out on the horizon of, um, of our world, our culture, in what ways are you seeing our culture characterized by the spirit of Babylon? This is your turn to talk. What are you seeing? Don't make eye contact with me because I'll call on you. <laughs> Rejecting God's law for either our own version of truth or a collectivist version of just this is what people want. Okay, so rejecting God's law either personally or collectively, where we as a people have collectively decided this is what we want versus what God wants. Yeah, good. Yes? Okay, an elevation of sexuality. What did you say the first? Degregation. Wow, big word. Degregation. Thank you, Luke. Yeah. Degre- uh, Lucas, sorry. Uh, degregation, yeah, uh, of sexuality, the ex- exaltation of sexuality. Yeah, what else? Yeah, the commonplace of pornography, where it's now become increasingly that which is just acceptable in one sense. It's, as long as it's privately done within, you know, and, and so then what do we have? We have, we have the ability to privately view pornography in such a way that it, it, it's no longer, you know, in my day, you had, to go to the, you had to go to the grocery store, you had to go to the 7-Eleven. Do we have 7-Elevens anymore? Anyway, you had to go to 7-Eleven, right? No way was I going to do that, right? And then, then we got it onto television, so we had our television. That's kind of hard to hide, but now we got cell phones, and we can hide all we want. Yeah, so there's this, there is this proliferation of pornography and then a, a general acceptance that this is okay. Yeah, Anything else that you're thinking of? Okay, so appeal to self. What did you say the second part? Okay, what you feel is absolutely true. What you think you feel is absolute truth is what is going to be truth is going to uh, live, live out your, your life. Okay, good. All right. All right, so these things have become characterized of our culture, and as our culture attempts to sideline and persecute Christianity, we can feel much like God's people. We can feel uh, abandoned. We can wonder if God is in control. Thus, the book of Daniel, chapter 1, we must resolve to hold fast to our gospel identity. We must hold fast to our gospel identity if we are to protect our conscience So what we're going to see is we're going to see conscience is the first peril that we might have to to protect our conscience in the face of a culture that's hostile to our faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what what chapter 1 seems to be about. We must hold fast to our gospel identity. And that's what what Daniel uh, and his friends were doing, and their gospel, their good news was that they knew who their God was. And we're going to see that in just, just a minute here. So let's look at now the text. So go to, go to Daniel, chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to uh, work through the text a, a little bit here. And I need to take a drink. Got a sweet cold the last two days. Needed to have antihistamine this morning. That'll dry you out. All right, here we go. Daniel chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So like any hostile takeover, the king begins to plunder his, his winnings. We look at verses 3 and 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So what's going on here? What, what's, what's he doing? What's, what's the strategy that Nebuchadnezzar has going on here? What's that? Okay, so he's trying to raise their identity into... Erase. Oh, there you go. Erase. First of all, we got to erase one identity. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so delete one culture and assimilate them into a new culture. Yes. Who's he chosen? The best of the best, right? We're, we're looking at the best. Now, why would he choose the best of the best? I mean, there's some, you know, some good smart thing, thinking going here. Okay, so there's going to be a, a level of following the best. So we bring in the royalty. We bring the best in there. They get assimilated. They just draw in the rest of the crowd. Good. What else might be going on? They've removed him. He's removed them from Jerusalem and removed them from Judea. Why would he remove them? Why couldn't he just do the teaching there? Okay, so there's le they're left without leadership, right? So he's removing the best of the best, so there's no revolts going on in these places that he's overrun, and he's bringing the best in because he's smart. He's going, to, he's going to use the resources. He's using human resource in order to further his kingdom, and in such a way, you, you can see, I mean, this is smart. He, this, this, guy's, this guy's a smart guy. So the first deportation is small, and it's strategic, it's a select number of individuals of political and economic status, and the intent is to remove those in the best position to lead a revolt, and it is also to redirect good human resource for the direct benefit of Babylon, and it is to remind Judas of her status now as a vassal state. And these are not just individuals who are born into the right family. What, what did you notice there about them? Yeah, they look good. Oh, yeah, they're the cream of the crop. I mean, they, they're, they're, the, they're the ones that look. They have the right look. They have the right Babylonian look, you know, kind of a, kind of, I think that's really interesting uh, that that's what they did. They had an appearance that was, was attractive and they were intelligent. And so what he's going to do is he's going to teach them the language and the literature. If you want to capture a culture, you learn their language and you learn their literature. One other thing that, that you learn is you learn their food. You start eating their food. I mean, if you really want to know a culture, that's what you do. All right. And so they're going to capture the essence of these people. And you notice here they're called the Chaldeans. And I just want to explain this. The Chaldeans is a name that is synonymous with Babylon. But the reason why we're calling them the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans was a southern province there of Babylonia. And they were the ones who were kind of the tip of the spear of their revolt against, uh, against the uh, Assyrians. And so they're kind of considered, hey, of, of you know, the, 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 real, the real Babylonians are the Chaldeans because they're the ones who who got us going. They're the ones who started it. They're the patriots, okay, of our country. So that's why they're, they're called um, Chaldeans there. Okay, look at verses 5 and 7. Here we go. 
the king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief eunuchs gave them names. Daniel called Bethelzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah called Abednego. That's at least how we say it. All right, so there we go. Why new names? Identity. Yeah, identity what? Anybody else? Yeah, we're, 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 we're moving our identity away from Jewish names. Now we're moving them into Babylonian names. So again, you know, changing, changing their identities. Daily they hear now new names. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your name being changed like that? And now you have a whole new name uh, over and over and over again. So names, language, stories, food-shaped people. The intent of the Lord, of the Babylonian lords, was to reshape these Hebrew uh, royals and nobles into the image of this new culture. And so what he's doing is what you had just pointed out, which is giving them Babylonian identities. Um, all right, so how should one live in this kind of culture? How should one live uh, knowing that your beliefs are now hostile and now they're attempting to reshape in, in its image? Well, Joyce Baldwin, in her commentary on Dan Daniel, said this. These godly men now have to decide how they will adjust to living in an environment unsympathetic to their religious convictions. Like everyone caught in cross-cultural change, they had to think through the principles involved in their actions and begin as they meant to go on. So they got to begin to, to, as they meant to go on. And that's where uh, we're going here. Bef uh, in, that's, I think that's what's going on in Daniel and his friends there right before verse 8 is having to say, what are the principles that we are to be going to be standing true to as we're in this culture that is completely hostile to uh, our culture, that's trying to reshape us in there. So verse 8 is why we have called uh, this, the next three hours, resolve. Look there, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Thus, Daniel resolved. And that's, that's what it's all about, is making some resolutions, resolving um, in the face of living in a culture that is different than ours. Daniel's willing. He's willing to get education. You know, he will, he's, he's kind of has to submit to the new name, but when it came to the king's food and wine, he drew a line. As Daniel went through the contortions in his heart of what was going to be offered by the king, he came to the conclusion that to accept food, the food and drink, was a defilement. His conscience was, at this point, pricked. And the peril in chapter 1 is that crisis of conscience. Okay. Yes. So we see the value and importance of the conscience. The conscience is that is that uh, light on our dashboard of our car, right? That goes on. You have several things that you can do with that. Particularly if it's a red one. If you have a red one, typically you're supposed to respond to it in one of two ways. Either you respond to it, you pull over to find out what's going on, or you get some black tape out and you put it over the con you know put it over the red thing. That's how. That's at least how Click and Clack does it. I don't know if you guys know Car Talk, but anyway, that's what their big joke is. So yeah, you put it you put it over there. So what are we going to do with our conscience? So our conscience has to be informed by God's word in order to 
in order for us to be people who then will, will have a conscience that's pricked by the culture that is, uh, that is around us. So, so the question is, why, why was the acceptance of the king's food and drink a defilement? Well, before we get there, I want, to, I want you to think about Daniel's uh, carefulness. Um, and I want to do that by going back or going forward to Ephesians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. So turn your Bibles now to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5.15. Ephesians 5.15, Paul writes, look carefully then. Now we've got to say, okay, what's then about? Okay, so uh, what's the then? What's the then back to? Well, it refers back to their identity Back in verse 1. So now you've got to go to Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Their identity is, look at there, verse 1. Their identity is beloved children. All right? They are to live out that identity. Now back to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully then, beloved children, how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There's a whole bunch of stuff packed into, that, into this one verse here. But here we go. There is an attentiveness necessary for those who claim to be the beloved children of God. If your identity is the child of God, he is saying, you need to have attentiveness. This is not an option for us, men. This is not an option anymore. <laughs> it never was, right? It's not an option. Attentiveness is necessary. Now, the, the phrase, look carefully, the very beginning of chapter 5, verse 15, look carefully, is a command. It's an imperative. We are commanded to look carefully how we walk. And secondly, the word carefully means to be accurate or precise or give close attention. All right. Now, according to verses 15 through 17, which I just read for you, 15 through 17, you're looking at it. Why are we commanded to look carefully, to pay close attention? Why is it? Just look at the verse. Don't, you know, just what's it say there? Because the days are evil. So you, Jay? Okay, because the days are evil. Because the days are evil. We live in Babylon. So we are to, again, there, verse 17, we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. So how do we know the will of the Lord? How do we know the will of the Lord? Christian is holding up his Bible. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So men, we have to be men of the word. It's not an option for us. So like I said, most, half of you are in there eating donuts. Half were in here. What I'm doing here, you can do. 
Because what you know what I did? I, I sat down and started reading Daniel 1, and I just started making observations and looking, wow, that's interesting, and started asking the text simple questions like, why would he ask them that? Why are they doing that? What's going on here? Just simple starting out of asking questions, ask questions, ask questions. I don't get this. I don't get this. I don't get this. Then you go to your friends, and your friends are the men and women who have written commentaries, and then they begin to say, hey, have you looked at this? Did you see that? And you say, oh, yeah, I asked that question. Man, I am as smart as the person who wrote that commentary. <laughs> I recognize this is an issue here. And so then they start explaining, this is possibly why we understand what's going on here, da-da-da. So this is something you can do. This is not outside the realm of possibilities of every person in this room for you to, to be able to do what I did. It's just taking the time. It's all about time. Taking time just to make observations, ask questions of the text, and begin to try to figure out what are the answers to those questions, and then try to bring it all back together again in terms of what you're learning. So, all right, as Daniel found him in a culture hostile to his beliefs, it was up to him to be attentive to what was being placed upon him. So back to the question, why was the eating of the king's food an issue of defilement? Well, interestingly enough, the text isn't clear. It doesn't tell us, right? So I'm going to give you some thoughts. <coughs> Excuse me. Four thoughts. We're going to go four thoughts, some principles, and then some applications. How are we doing on time? We're okay. Four thoughts, principles, and applications. First, here's a first thought of why he may have done it. First, it may be that the food did not meet the requirements of the Mosaic law. They, couldn't, they, they weren't sure if that was going to, what they were going to get was going to actually fit within the Mosaic law, particularly including the meat that was forbidden. The food laws were given to remind God's people that his holiness is not to be parceled out and, and simply reserved for some religious section of life. I mean, we, we look at those food laws and say, what in the world is going on there? What's going on there is he's saying, I'm not a God who just fits nicely into a compartment of your life. It actually fits into the, uh, the, every part of your life. Matter of fact, down to the mundane things that you must do every single day, and that is when you eat your oatmeal in the morning, you need to be thinking of me. How many of you ate oatmeal this morning? I did. That's what I eat every morning. All right. So, so okay, so that's what he's saying. He's saying life is not simply about, with me, it's not simply about, you know, this portion of your life. He's saying, oh, no, it's about the mundane things of life. I want you to be thinking of me because I'm thinking of you. All right, so that's, uh, that could have been one of the things. So they were in special relationship with him. We call that identity. So what do we need to hold on to? We need to resolve to hold on to our identity. They were holding on to their identity. Potentially it was that. Secondly, the defilement may have something to do with meat and wine being dedicated to idols. So the practice of food and wine that was dedicated to idols was to give personal recognition to those idols and deities. And so, again, they're thinking, well, who's my God? Well, who your God is is going to give you your identity. All right? So what you think is your ultimate good is going to be your identity. It's going to create your identity. And so they recognize, no, our God is our God is identity. We are all worshipers, and what we worship does give our identity. Third reason, it's proposed that Daniel simply rejected this symbolic dependence on the king. The defilement was a moral defilement of dependence and a subtle flattery of gifts and favors which implied future loyal support. And so he had to ask the question, well, who am I really depending upon? Oh, I'm depending upon God. Once again, identity. Or fourthly, it could have been for Daniel's rejection of the king's food and wine maybe to remind himself of his true country. 
He wished so to live in Chaldea as to consider himself an exile and a captive sprung from the sacred family of Abraham. And so the very food that he ate, he wanted to remind himself of, of that relationship that he had, of that covenant that he was within. Uh, he saw that food was more than just simply something for the body, but it was also something for the soul. Once again, we go back to identity. He's remembering, reminding himself of his identity um, in God. So we must resolve... Hold fast to our gospel identity if we are to protect our conscience in the face of a culture that is hostile to our faith in Jesus Christ. So let me give you some principles, and then we're going to think about some applications. Principle number one, living and leading in Babylon recognizes that all of life reflects the holiness of our God, which requires thoughtful living. All of life. So principle number one, Living and leading in Babylon recognizes all of life reflects the holiness of a God, which requires thoughtful living. Number two, living, excuse me, living and leading in Babylon requires that we recognize our identity, that we recognize our identity as learners, as learners. Daniel knew he did not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Jesus knew that. So we, we live out our identity as learners. Number three, living and leading in Babylon rests in a dependence upon God. Rests in a dependence upon God. So we rest in a dependence upon God. And then... Number four, living and leading in Babylon risks loss. They were going to lose a lot. I mean, they, they got pulled in. They were the cream of the crop, but they were going to lose that, possibly, by this resolution. But they were willing to take the risk. They were risking a loss of position and power in order to be true to their conscience. So, Mr. Hubei, I uh, can't think of your first name all of a sudden. Tony. Tony's absolutely right. How do you say that again in terms of the conscience? You sear your conscience, your faith is shipwreck. Yeah. Yeah, the conscience is extremely valuable and great gift that God has given to us. We can't waste it. Um, Okay, so what was the outcome of the decision? Well, let's read the rest of the chapter and then give two applications. So easy, easy enough here. Go back to Daniel chapter 2. Probably know the story. But here we go. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the, eunuch, the chief, chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to the Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are in your own age? So you would, endangered my, you would endanger my head and the king. And the Daniel, Daniel said to the steward, so now he's moved to another individual here. This, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm on verse 10, thank you. Uh, no, verse 11, verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and drink and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearances of the, are you, of the youths who eat the foods, king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. 
So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it seemed it was seen that they were better in appearance, surprisingly so, and fatter in flesh. Not typically vegetables don't do that, and water. And fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine, and, they were, and, they, and the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. All right. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded they be brought to the chief of the eunuchs, he brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So he actually began to, he, he was there the whole time of, the, of this Babylonian kind of power before Cyrus then came in and over, overran them, all right? So there's the outcome of the story, if you weren't familiar with the outcome of the story. So we don't have any more time for that, but let's go here. Let's go to some applications, all right? Application number one. Application one, number one, this is, this is something we have to do, and that is we need to, number one, identify, you need to identify your core identity. You need to identify that. Who are you? It's absolutely imperative that you recognize who you are. What is your core identity? When you think about who you are, what do you think of? See, the core identity must be settled before the crisis. Because if you haven't gotten that one settled, you're going to hit the crisis. Your conscience may be pricking you, but you're risking too much loss. You're going to probably give in and cave in. Rick, I see your hand. So, so they were assimilating the literature, right? Right? They were doing that. So there were some things there. You think, well, why did he? Why didn't he draw the line there? Well, that that literature was actually, you know, wh- whose literature is that ultimately? You know, it's God's literature, right? Whatever, whatever the Babylonians had discovered, and they had made some amazing discoveries. Uh, whatever discoveries they had made, God was the common grace in there, and so. That was, that was part of it. It, all, it seemed to me it came down, because I, I was wondering about that same thing. It's like, well, why that? Why food? But I think the food helps us to understand that what ultimately what they're recognizing is, is that that was a, a, an identifying mark for them, that they didn't want to reject their identity by taking on the food. And so it's asking the question, what is it that will, that is our, that will imperil our identity? And obviously with that culture, or with the readings and the study and everything they've learned, because he, he learned to become, and, that, and matter of fact, we're going to find, you know, what we find there at the end there, that he actually becomes part of this, you know, Babylonian uh, hierarchy. Uh, these wise men, as we're going to discover, uh, these are the experts. He becomes part of the experts. So he's actually engaging himself in this culture, but in a way that he's not, he's not taking away his identity. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge. You had a thought. Yep.
So you're saying, what you are saying is that when he, he had already done the hard work of understanding and knowing wisdom. So, you know, if you remember, you know, wisdom was what? It's, it's, it's truth. It's God's truth that's then been knowing how it's applied to the, to the world. So if here are these three, Daniel and his friends, here they are. They have known God's word. They know God's truth. They know how it applies. They're wise individuals. And then they enter into this, into this cultural situation. They know what to you know, they know how to sieve it out, if you will, in terms of the Word of God. Would that be a fair way of, of saying what you're, what you're saying? Okay, good. Yeah? I Yeah, I, I, see, I see what you're saying, and, and I would go back to and just simply say that as we are, as we are thinking about the culture that we're living in today, what is what will endanger our identity? What will will be pushing back against our identity that we cannot give up? And that's 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 the challenge. And you know, I'm not you know this this isn't an easy wow. How do you work this out? This is challenging, but we need to be thinking through what are, what do we take on. I would agree with you in terms of. They seem to they seem to say we're going to live within this culture. We're going to we're going to, and we're going to see. In, next hour what Jeremiah tells him to do in that culture, but we're going to live there and we're going to do it in such a way that we make good in that culture, but we're going to also be very careful that we are true to our identity. Those things are going to steal that away, we are going to reject and, and not hold on to. Yeah. 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 And what's going to be challenging for the student who goes to Iowa State is that they're going to be challenged to say, where do you find your identity? And it is not found outside of yourself. It's not found in the fact that you're made in the image of God. It's found in who you think you are sexually. And they're going to have to, that's why we need to have our students, they need to have that identity. What is your identity? What's the core of your identity? Who are you? Made in the image of God, but ultimately you pray that they also are the child of God. So as they're walking through that, they're going to be, that's what they're going to have to wrestle with. That's what we have to wrestle with. That's what they're going to have to wrestle with. And we could probably think of a few, few other things. Yeah, Shane.
Yeah, and I would say, so I'm going to give a second application, and, and that is that you've already kind of one, one sense heard it, and that is that we must commit ourselves to be learners. We need to commit ourselves to be learners. We need to commit to a life of learning, a life in community with one another, which is what you're referring to, uh, making disciples, being made into a disciple, and being, making disciples, so that when we are in these uh, moments, uh, like you're talking about, where it's, it's, it's lunchtime now, and we're having a conversation, that we're listening uh, well to what they're saying and trying to listen with gospel ears and understand, well, what are, what are they placing their identity and going from, going from there and then being able to talk about the identity we have in Christ and how we have hope in Christ because of that, because of that identity. And ultimately, I'm going to say this, and that is that um, uh, we don't have to be super-versed in all the arguments of our, of our cultural moment. If, you're, if you know God's Word and you know what your identity is, you can speak out of that identity in amazing ways that you don't realize. I mean, uh, just who you understand who God is, which we're going to see in chapter 2 here in a minute here, is that when you know who God is, you can begin to speak out of who He is in terms of that cultural moment that you may be having at the water cooler, at lunch, uh, and other places. So we don't have to feel overwhelmed like i got to read all these books of that nature. Just read God's Word, start there, and then move out of there. Thank you.